You can be seated. If you've got your copy this morning of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. If you've ever signed an employment contract, or really any sort of contract, then you understand the purpose of a signed document. All the parties involved in some sort of an agreement have come together and they read the terms of the contract and they prove that they understand what it says and agree to uphold their end of the contract by what? By signing their name at the bottom. If that contract is at some point broken, then this signed document will be evidence that ending the contract is fair. And all the consequences that come with breaking this agreement are just. This has happened all throughout human history where people have come together and have bound themselves or agreed to work together under some sort of a contract or agreement. And a version of the same thing happens regularly throughout the Bible, even in the ancient Near East thousands and thousands of years ago. In fact, all of Exodus chapter 19 through 24 is one long covenant or contract. It's a binding agreement. In Exodus 19, God on Mount Sinai told Israel to prepare themselves and to get ready because He was about to come down near them. He was about to enter into a covenant with them. And then He began to speak to them from the top of Sinai, giving what we call today the Ten Commandments. They couldn't handle hearing God's voice, so they asked Moses to go up on the mountain and hear the remainder of this covenant. And Moses went up, and what we've been covering for the last couple months is the rest of what God called His people to in this covenant. Exodus 20 through 23, all the laws about slaves and marriage and servants and property and restitution and social justice, all those laws are called the book of the covenant. And all of this is going on so that at the end of God giving the laws, the the statutes of this covenant, Moses will come down and Israel and God will agree to the terms of this relationship. There's an understanding that the future of God's relationship with Israel being either solid or sour will be dependent on Israel keeping the covenant. If they obey God's laws, then He will be near them, and He will bless them, and He will protect them. But if they break this covenant, then God will oppose them. God will remove them from the land that they're going to. God will no longer dwell near them. These kinds of covenants and rituals were common in the ancient Near East. And Exodus 24 that we read now is detailing the last step of this covenant, the last step that's needed to confirm and ratify and make it official. Let's read Exodus 24 together. It says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar." Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain... And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of their midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now we know that while Moses is up on the mountain, while he alone goes into this cloud, into the presence of God, that he's going to get more instructions from God. The next few weeks we're going to be looking at the instructions He gives about how to construct the tabernacle, which is this moving tent that that God will dwell in amongst His people. God's going to give Moses the instructions for the priesthood and what they are to wear and what they are to do. He's going to lay out for Moses how God can actually dwell in the midst of His sinful people, the people of Israel. We know that while Moses is up on the mountain, that the famous story of the golden calf happens, where they get tired of waiting for Moses to come back and they commit idolatry and break the covenant. We know what's coming, but before we get there, I want to point your attention this morning to three truths that I think are important to notice here in Exodus 24. And the first of those is this. We see in our text that Israel is optimistic about obedience. Israel is optimistic about obedience. 
Israel could not handle hearing the voice of God when God gave the Ten Commandments. So they begged Moses to go up and get the rest of the law from them. He gets the laws, what he calls in verse 7, the book of the covenant. And these ten commandments in the book of the covenant, they make up Israel's covenant obligations. This is what they must do to obey God and to be led by and blessed and protected by Him. And in verse 3, Moses comes down, he shares these laws with Israel, and they respond, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. This is an informal agreement. They've heard the law for the first time. They say, yes, we're on board. We will keep that. And as soon as they say that, Moses gets busy going to make that agreement a formal covenant. After these steps that he takes, which we'll talk about in a minute, he comes back and he's now written down the law and he reads it aloud to them again. And now that it's written down and sacrifices have been offered and all the covenant thing, ratification steps had been taken, he reads it again and what do they say in verse 7? Again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. There's an understanding in this covenant that God is going to hold Israel responsible and accountable to keeping these laws. And Israel is confident that they can do it. They're confident that they can obey these laws that God has given to them from Sinai. And we need to pause here and just consider how this story plays out if we know the rest of Israel's story. There are... No Israelites who keep this promise to God perfectly. In fact, the entire generation who came out of Egypt and who saw the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea, that entire generation minus two men, Joshua and Caleb, are going to die out in the wilderness, not making it to the promised land because they break this covenant and refuse to obey God. In fact, it's not just the whole generation. None of their leaders, none of the 70 elders who go up on the mountain and see and eat with God are going to keep this covenant. Aaron, the brother of Moses, the mouthpiece of God, the first high priest, will soon be at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf and breaking God's covenant. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons who will serve as priests as from the tribe of Levi, in the book of Leviticus, they are going to be struck down dead for offering unauthorized fire on God's altar, trying to worship God in their own way instead of the way that God has prescribed for them. Even Moses, the prophet and deliverer of Israel, will disobey God and be barred from entering the promised land. Israel has seen God's power to save them. They've seen God's power to keep them and sustain them in the wilderness. They've been led by a faithful prophet. They've heard God's voice from Sinai. They know God is real. But they still can't keep the covenant. But they think that they can keep the covenant. They're optimistic about their ability to obey. They trust in their ability to obey with optimism, with confidence. But they end up dead in the wilderness. Friends, true 
Saving faith begins with humbly acknowledging that we cannot meet God's standards on our own. Israel's story is evidence that it is possible to know about God. It is possible to see God at work around you without truly trusting and knowing Him. That's why Jesus said what He said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but the one who does my Father's will. He says, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do many mighty works in Your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now Jesus is saying this thousands of years later to a crowd primarily of Jews who are listening to Him and wondering who He is. Could He be the Messiah? But the old Israelite version of this teaching might have sounded something like this. Lord, Lord, did we not enter into the covenant with You at Sinai? Did we not receive Your law and wholeheartedly agree to keep it? Did we not promise that we would obey You and be Your people? Before hearing, depart from me. For you never loved me and obeyed me, and I never knew you. Friends, we must be warned when we look at Israel as an example. We must be warned that trusting in our ability to please God is dangerous. We must be warned that having religious experiences, being familiar with God, with His stories, even having served Him without truly loving Him and repenting of sin and obeying Him and striving for holiness. Friends, that is the fast track to judgment. It happens to Israel here, and as we saw last week, there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. A holiness that we must have as a overflow of God's grace to us through Jesus. There is, a, there is a, a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. We can know lots about God, but if we have good theology and orthodox beliefs and we're not falling for false teaching, but we are not changed and transformed by the power of the gospel so that our lives look different and our lives exalt Christ and are led by the Spirit then true salvation has not happened. Israel is optimistic about an obedience that they cannot perform. They know lots about God. They've experienced lots of God and seeing Him work. But they do not know Him. That's the first truth that we see here as we read of this covenant ratification and their optimism and then think about how this turns out for them. But there's another truth that I want you to focus on, and that's this. In our text, we see, secondly, that only bloodshed can confirm the covenant. Only bloodshed can confirm the covenant that God makes with His people. Moses gets busy in verses 4 to 8, making this formal binding covenant. He writes down all the words that the Lord has given. This is not going to be an oral agreement. It's going to be a binding, written down document. And then he builds an altar. 
following God's rules that He gave about building altars in Exodus 20. And He does this so that sacrifices can be made. Why are sacrifices needed? This covenant would be like all other covenants in the ancient Near East. It would be confirmed or ratified through blood. In the ancient Near East, you didn't just sign your signature at the bottom of the agreement. Instead, blood had to be shed. You might remember that story that's kind of odd to read of Abraham in Genesis 15. God is entering into a covenant with Abraham and He tells him to go and cut a bunch of animals in half. To to kill these animals and then cut them in half and then make a path between the two lines of animal carcasses. In the ancient Near East, this was how you would confirm a covenant. Both parties who were entering into this binding agreement would walk through the slain animals together. And as they did that, they were sending the message, if I break my part of this covenant, then let what has happened to these animals happen to me. It's an acknowledgement that I deserve to be cursed for breaking this binding agreement that I'm entering into. And the same thing's going on here in Exodus 24. An altar is built with 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This covenant's not just for the leaders, it's for all the people. And they're represented by these pillars and by the elders that they send from their tribe to go to the Lord. There's no ordained priest yet. So verse 5 says that Moses sends young men to go and offer burnt and peace offerings to the Lord. And then the blood is drained from these, these offerings and the blood is split into two different places. Half of it is put in basins or bowls to be used later. And then half of it is thrown against the altar where the sacrifices have been made. Throwing the blood against the altar, which represents God, is symbolizing that God is agreeing to His part of the covenant. He's agreeing by this, and He's proving that by this blood being thrown on the altar, which represents His presence. But then, in verse 7, Moses reads the whole law again. Israel agrees to keep it, and upon that agreement, what does Moses do? He throws the blood. He sprinkles the blood on the people of Israel. This is a big, bloody mess. And that's exactly the point. He says, as he sprinkles the blood on the people who've agreed to the covenant, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. This is the way that Israel signs their name on the document. It's through the blood being applied to them. What they're saying is if we break the covenant, we understand that what has happened to these slain and animals should happen to us. As pastor and commentator Phil Riken explains, sealing the covenant in blood shows that this is a matter of life and death. Why? Because blood has always represented life and death. So throughout history, blood has been used to symbolize our commitment to one another. This is where we get the idea of blood brothers or a blood pact. And it's no different thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East. 
Signing your name will not do. The agreement must be sealed in blood so everyone knows what's at stake. And the same thing is true for us and our salvation today. Much later in Matthew 26, we read of Jesus in the upper room taking the Passover meal with His disciples before He's crucified. And as He takes the cup, He says, Drink, all of you, for this is My blood of the new covenants, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Exodus 24, Israel's covenant with God is confirmed with the blood being sprinkled on them. And much later, Jesus will come and will found a new and better covenant. And He will found it and confirm it with blood as well. In this new covenant, the people of God will have forgiveness forever because of Jesus' once-for-all sufficient sacrifice of sinless blood to pay for their sin. But Jesus doesn't sprinkle the blood on them. Instead, in the upper room, He tells them to take and drink the wine, which represents what? The blood of Jesus that will soon be shed for them. The people of God, new covenant believers, do not have some ceremony where they actually sprinkle physical blood on you. If you go to a church that does that, go somewhere else. Right? That, that's, not, that's not how it has happened throughout history. But instead, new covenant believers must believe by faith in the finished work of Jesus and the shed blood that He has shed for them. They must publicly identify with Jesus. In baptism, they must symbolically identify themselves with Him as they renew their covenant vows again and again and again at the Lord's table as they take of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and identify with Him. All of these things are possible in the new covenant because of Jesus' shed blood. Because the Bible teaches that without bloodshed, there can be no forgiveness of sins. God who is holy cannot just overlook our sin and look the other way and sweep it under the rug. That's not how it works. He is good and righteous and just. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And that's why it's right for us to think about and preach and sing about blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood, so divine, such a wonderful beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. Alas, and did my Savior 
bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne. My surety stands before the throne. My surety stands. My name is written on his hands, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a savior friends bloodshed might sound barbaric to modern ears but what may we never become so proper and so civilized, and so enlightened that we forget that atonement only can come through bloodshed. May we never forget that Jesus sealed our new covenant agreement with God with His own blood. Only bloodshed can confirm the covenant. That is true for Israel in the old covenant and it is true for us today as new covenant believers as well. That's the second truth I want you to see. But there's one more and I want to spend a little bit of time here. And that's this. Third, we see in our text that beholding and belonging to God is the prize. Beholding And belonging to God is the prize. After this covenant is read and written down and confirmed in verses 9 through 11, Moses and Aaron and his two sons and the 70 elders of Israel go up on the mountain, and the text says they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God. And we're not told what God looks like. You would expect if they saw God in His fullness that the next verse would say, and this is what He looked like, right? But that's not what we see. Instead, we only hear what was underneath His feet. It says, what appeared to be a pavement of sapphire stone. Commentators make sense of this differently. Some say that the reason that we only have a description of What was underneath God's feet when they saw Him is that Israel could only look up and see underneath God, kind of like what happens in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1. And this would explain how the text can say that they saw God, while many other places in the Bible say that you can't see God face to face. If they're only getting closer to God and seeing Him from a distance, then it means that they see Him and they see His surroundings, but they couldn't get too close to Him. Other commentators say that the reason that the only thing they can describe is what's at God's feet is because as soon as they caught a glimpse of God, they immediately fell prostrate on the ground, overwhelmed by being so near to such a glorious being. So they got a good long look at what was going on on the ground around them, but not at God because they couldn't handle to look at Him. And to be honest, I'm not sure which of those is a better option. I kind of like both of them. But what I do know is that verse 11 goes out of the way to say this, that as they drew near to God, God did not lay His hand on the people. You've got to remember, God is holy. He cannot be near sin. 
without His just, righteous goodness and holiness, judging it and standing against it. And Israel, they are not sinless people. They are people who constantly rebel against Him and have hearts far from Him. So God is holy and Israel is not. And that means that it's shocking that they can get so near to Him without facing His judgment. That's why Moses includes this detail. They drew near to Him and they didn't die. That's that's shocking to Moses and to ancient Israelite readers. Instead, as they enter this covenant with God, they are temporarily able to draw near to and behold and eat and drink and fellowship with God. Now, he doesn't say what they ate, what was on the menu. He doesn't say how long this experience lasts. He only says that these representatives of Israel are temporarily able to behold and belong to God in fellowship. And that's really been the goal all along, right? Think about the big story of the Bible. Adam and Eve used to walk and talk with the Lord in perfect peace before they rebelled against Him and sin entered our world. And what the Bible is, is one big story about how we, fallen sinners, can get back to that, can get back to dwelling with God at peace. Why is it such a big deal? That we dwell with God, that we are able to behold Him and belong to Him. The reason it's such a big deal is this, because the Bible claims over and over and over that the fullness of joy, the the all-satisfying treasure, the climax of existence is found in dwelling with God. The Bible claims that that's better than everything else we could ever experience. But it's hard to believe that. There are parts of our life here on earth that are so enjoyable that we cannot even imagine something else being better. Many of us love when the weather changes and fall colors take over. Or maybe it's a different season that you always love when that season comes. Many of us love family traditions. We love the nostalgia, thinking back to the memories of what we used to have, even thinking back to the memories of those who are no longer with us. We hold those things near and dear in our heart. And every time that the holidays or different family traditions roll around, it reminds us of those good and glorious and simple and beautiful days. We remember young love, the excitement of romance, pursuing and being pursued by the one that we cherish. We love the exhilaration of our team, whoever you root for, winning the game at the last second. We love the excitement and the anticipation as you've been waiting out in the woods and that big buck finally comes out and gives you a clear shot. We remember our child's first giggle. The first time they looked up at us and said, Dada or Mama. We treasure those little moments and those milestones as they grow up and then we burst with pride at their accomplishments. We have all experienced times where our jaws have dropped as we see the beauty of God's creation and we remember how small and insignificant we really are in comparison with the masterpiece of the creation that God has painted on the canvas of the world. We have all had moments where the hair will stand up 
up on the back of our necks as we experience the beauty and emotion of a song that we love or an experience that we've had. Friends, there are moments in this life that are glorious and are filled with joy and meaning and significance and value. And it is hard to believe that there can be anything better than those things. But if the Bible's true, then all of those things, as great and glorious as they are, they are merely temporary tastes. They are momentary glimpses of what the fullness of joy is like. God has made us to dwell with Him, to behold Him, to belong to Him, to be at peace with Him, to rest in Him forever and ever and ever. And God's Word says all throughout the canon of Scripture, that experience of beholding and belonging to God will make everything we've ever known and tasted and seen and experienced in this life pale in comparison. When we think about heaven, when we think about being with God as somehow being less than or deficient to what we have in this life, we show that we do not truly understand what is coming in our future. In C.S. Lewis's famous words, when we consider the unblushing promises of reward, when we consider the staggering nature of what God has promised to us, but we prefer to half-heartedly pursue lesser joys in this life over being with God, we are like ignorant children who are not excited about a holiday at the sea because we are satisfied making mud pies in a slum. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, beholding and belonging to God is not the cherry on top of an otherwise satisfying life. God is the cake and ice cream. God is the prize. God is the treasure. Being with Him is the goal. It is the climax. It is the high point. It is all downhill from there. And when we behold and belong to God fully and forever, everything else, even the most joy-filled experiences in this life, will be as nothing and as lost to us. Not because they don't matter, but because this is so much better. And Israel's leaders get a taste of that here on the mountain. And in the next chapters, God is going to give instructions to them to build this moving tent that we call a tabernacle so that God, who is holy, can dwell permanently amidst His people. But if beholding God and belonging to God fully and forever is the ultimate prize then it is obvious that something is still missing here on the mountain. And something is still missing in the tabernacle they will soon build. Because we read in verses 12 through 18 that Moses alone can go all the way up the mountain to dwell with God. 
And as they construct the tabernacle, we will read in time that only the high priest can go into the presence of God in the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, and only once a year and only temporarily. And what that means is this, these glimpses of God that these leaders have on the mountain, these these priests who will be able to be near God in the tabernacle, those things are nice. But Israel will never be able to fully behold and belong to God under this system because of their sin. They will never be able to enjoy and experience God's glory face to face. They will never be able to boldly approach the holy God with no fear of shame and guilt or judgment. For that to to even be possible, something greater then keeping laws and offering sacrifices must happen. Only God can overcome this obstacle, and that is why Jesus must come. He takes on flesh. He lives sinlessly. He upholds God's law perfectly. He takes our judgment on Himself as our sacrifice for sin. He overcomes the grave in His resurrection. He pays our penalty. He breaks the power of our sin and of death and of hell and of Satan. His blood that is shed makes atonement for our sin. He is our sacrificial Passover lamb. He is our high priest who intercedes with us or before God for us. And because of Jesus' finished work, we can be be at peace with God. Because of Jesus' finished work, the veil in that temple that they're about to build will that separates God from His people, it will be torn in two so that access to God is possible. Because of Jesus' finished work, that boundary marker that separates Israel from God on the mountain will be torn down. Because of His finished work, the flaming swords of those angels who guard Eden will be laid down. We are able to go to God and dwell with Him forever and ever in fullness of joy because of our Savior Jesus. Friends, Christianity is not about keeping rules to avoid judgment. Christianity is not about being good enough for God and looking down on others who aren't. What Christianity is ultimately about, its end game and goal and climax, is that we are able to dwell in the presence of God forever where there is fullness of joy. And our Savior Jesus purchases that future inheritance for us through His life and death and resurrection. And when we believe in Him, Our Savior will send the Spirit of God to come dwell in us now so that we are empowered to not live for the temporary trinkets and treasures of this life that do not last, but we are empowered to live for the eternal glory of God that will never fade. Friends, God is the treasure. God is the prize. God is the good news. And dwelling with Him forever is ours if we are in Christ. We cannot be optimistic about our obedience, but what we can do is believe in Jesus' perfect obedience in our place.
We could never offer enough sacrifices to please God, but Jesus' once-for-all atoning sacrifice was enough to turn away the wrath of God and to give us forgiveness forever and ever. We could never on our own approach the holy God's throne in our sin, but Jesus' finished work qualifies us to boldly approach God and dwell with Him forever. We must look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, surrender to Jesus, and live for Jesus. He is our Savior and King, our joy and our treasure. And our eternal covenant with God, our eternal agreement with God that all of our hope is built on. Friends, it is not signed in ink from a pen. Instead, that eternal agreement with God that all our hope is built on is signed in the loving, sacrificial, dark, red, Galilean blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we must cling to Him by faith. We must trust in and surrender to Him by faith. We must praise Him by faith. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father God, we thank You today for Jesus. We thank You for the undeserving grace that You have shown to us through Him. We thank You this morning, God, that You are a God who saves. We thank You for the blood that He shed and His humility and willingness to come and live and die and overcome the grave in our place as our substitute. God, I pray for myself and for all of us. Lord, that You'll open the eyes of our spiritual hearts to see and savor Jesus Christ for who He is. God, help us not be bored with You. Help us not grow apathetic towards You. Help us not to lose our first love. Help us not to lose the wonder of the Gospel. It is so simple that a child can understand it, and yet its riches are so deep that we could never mine them. God, we pray that You will stir up our affections for You. Help us to fix our eyes on You and on our Savior Jesus. God, help us to see the foolishness of living for the things of this world that will not last when eternal joy is offered to us through Jesus. Help us to live for that reward and that treasure that can never fade or be taken away. God, if anyone here doesn't know You, as we sing this closing song, Amazing Grace, I pray, God, that You will soften their hearts and open their eyes and help them to respond by repentance and faith in Your Gospel. And God, if we're here this morning and we find ourselves looking for the things of the world to satisfy, even those most beautiful and glorious things in this life, God, help us to see there's something better. There's something that lasts longer. There's something that makes this life pale in comparison, and it's Jesus Christ and being with You, God, forever and ever. God, we pray that You will help us to lift our eyes and focus on and praise and worship You. Because, God, You are worthy. Thank You for the blood. Thank You for Jesus' sinless life, bloody sacrificial death, 
and powerful, glorious resurrection. Thank You for the Gospel. We pray that we will never consider Your grace to be just average, but instead that it will always be amazing to us. We love You and we praise You. Help us to respond by faith this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.